Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I am so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with our guest today, one of the most accomplished and perceptive healthcare leaders of our time, Dr. Robert Pearl. In this interview, we're going to be discussing some really pivotal and timely topics that I've been thinking quite a bit about. The first is the rapidly emerging phenomena of large retailers in American healthcare, some of the challenges and opportunities that healthcare systems, provider groups, and hospitals face, a recommendation regarding Medicare Advantage, and I think so importantly, the leadership mindset, and specifically, what type of leadership is needed right now in healthcare. Now, before I formally introduce Dr. Pearl, I'm going to make a request of you. If you find value in this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and also rate it online. My purpose here is to foster more awareness, dialogue, and action to catalyze the much-needed humanistic transformation of American healthcare. So to those of you who have already begun sharing the podcast, I greatly, greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and more importantly, to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. Dr. Robert Pearl was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group from 1999 to 2017. In this role, he led 12,000 physicians, 42,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West Coast and East Coast. Named one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders, Dr. Pearl serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Dr. Pearl is the author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. It's a Washington Post bestseller. He's also the author of Uncaring, how the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. That was published in May of 2021. I have read both books more than once. I could not recommend them highly enough. Fantastic works. Dr. Pearl also hosts a podcast called Fixing Healthcare and Coronavirus, The Truth. He publishes a newsletter called Monthly Musings on American Healthcare, and he's a regular contributor to Forbes. Dr. Pearl received his medical degree from the Yale University School of Medicine, and he completed his residency at Stanford University. Robbie, I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop here and just say welcome to Creating a New Healthcare. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for that introduction. Just for listeners, two other things. All profits from those books go to Doctors Without Borders. This is a wonderful charity that we all should be supporting. And anyone who has additional questions or want more information, go to my website, robertpearlmd.com. But it's great to be with you today and looking forward to today's conversation. I'm so excited, Robbie. I've been listening to you and reading some publications you've put out recently. So I'm going to just jump into a topic that I've been intensely focused on, as you know, in Reframing Healthcare that was published in 2019. I wrote about the large retailers and the pharmacy chains, the Walmarts, the Walgreens, the Amazon, CVS Health. So you recently published a wonderful article in Forbes on this topic and I'd like to explore your take on, on how these retailers are positioning themselves to be 
winners in the healthcare market and what do you think the likelihood of their successes and even their timeline? I'm so curious if you could just walk us through your thoughts on that. Let's begin by defining who these large retailers are. And you've mentioned, I'll say the three that I think are at the cutting edge, the Amazon, CVS, and Walmart. And each of these is a many hundreds of millions, sorry, hundreds of billions of dollars in annual revenue. And we have to understand that that changes a mindset. These companies don't go into any industry on a small time basis. A million dollars or even $10 million is just not worth their time. So when they make a move, it's very significant. And what we're seeing is that these three large players are moving into all three parts of medical care. They're moving into the pharmacy piece, they're moving into the care delivery piece, and they're moving into the insurance piece. You have Amazon acquiring One Medical for $3.9 billion. They acquired PillPack a little while ago. And this is a company that has tremendous relationships with the businesses that are self-funded. So they have a means of getting entree into the very profitable $4.1 trillion healthcare world. You have CVS that obviously has its own pharmacies and it acquired Aetna, which is an insurance company, recently paid between eight and $9 billion for Signify, 10,000 physicians providing virtual and at-home care. And Walmart just signed a 10-year deal with the United Health Group with its uh, Optum data analytic company. Hmm. So when you put these three companies into perspective, what you see is they are in a position to take over all of healthcare. We're not talking about a thin slice. And imagine $4.1 trillion, if they could have the revenue of 10%, we're talking now about a $400 billion revenue that doubles the size or nearly doubles the size for each of these companies. This is a major play. So to the question you posed in terms of the time, what I see is a short game, a middle game, and a long game. The short game is what they're playing right now. Acquire the pieces to be able to dominate each of these three areas. The middle game, and we're seeing it already, is move into the one part of American healthcare that is fully capitated, and that is Medicare Advantage. And each of these companies has millions of Medicare Advantage people now and see that as a major growing area. And once you can show your ability to take a set payment, which is what capitation is, for a population of people and reduce the inefficiencies, take out the wasted expense, you have a very strong value proposition that you can now take to the payers of care, the businesses and the individuals, and potentially even the government. And so I see a 10-year horizon 
in which these large retailers will move into healthcare the same way they moved into a broad swath of the retail world. And I could see them displacing and eliminating many of the current, I'll call them independent insurers, many of the physicians and hospitals in a variety of communities, and many of the smaller pharmaceutical drugstore chains. How do you, that second step, that middle game, clearly Medicare Advantage is growing while fee-for-service Medicare is shrinking year over year. I've seen some of the predictions or, or the trends saying it's going to be Medicare Advantage is going to be 60% or more of the Medicare market by 2030. From a business perspective, do you see this as a part of what these large retailers are going to focus on, or do you see this as sort of the bigger game? And and from a business perspective, why 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 are they so focused on Medicare ventures? Why so interested in in capitation? And again, you know, you look at healthcare systems and hospitals across the country going very very slowly, dipping their toe very slowly into this game. And where, what role do you think CMS is going to play here? I start with the view that fee for service is a outdated, antiquated concept that worked well in the 20th century when the problems that people had were acute, appendicitis, pneumonia, a broken bone. You had a very specific problem. The treatments available were not particularly expensive. You clearly needed to have the care provided. The physician did it and got reimbursed or the hospital did it and got reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis. In the 21st century, I believe that fee-for-service is quite problematic and actually is undermining the quality given to patients as well as the satisfaction of the providing physicians. I mean, I don't know if you've ever done a remodel in your kitchen or your bathroom, but I'm gonna doubt that you told the contractor do whatever you want, bill me time and materials, and whatever it is, I'll pay. That's not the way it works in an area, first, where there's overlapping motivations, and second of all, with this tremendous variation, and I'll call it in quality cost viewpoints. And that is the American healthcare system today, and I think it's contributing to many of the problems that exist. I think everyone knows it. I mean, this is not new. In something like 1932, what was called the CCMC, a Committee to Contain Medical Costs was created. And what did they recommend almost 100 years ago mm -hmm. that we move from paying for volume to moving to paying from value? You know, that aligns the incentives. It, it encourages and incentivizes prevention, avoidance of complications from chronic disease avoidance and elimination of medical error. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we, we do such a terrible job mm. at, at managing chronic disease. Hypertension, which was the number one chronic disease associated with COVID deaths, 60% across the United States. When I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we did it 90%. You know, we didn't have better doctors. We didn't have different drugs. Mm. It's an incentive system I teach in the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and we teach students 
Tell me your incentives and I'll tell you what people are going to do. It's not conscious, it's not negative, but that I believe is the reality. So I think the evolution from FIFA service to capitation is inevitable. So you ask yourself, well, the question you posed to me, well, why hasn't it happened? Hmm. Because you can make so much more money easily in FIFA service. That is what's going on. It's a lot easier to drive up quantity than increase efficiency. But these large companies, they understand how do you put in place a highly performing supply chain. They understand how you put in place a system that eliminates duplication, that uses modern technology to be able to better achieve an outcome. I mean, the fact that the, mo the way that, the most common way that doctors exchange information is the fax machine, an 1834 invention. I mean, how are we still doing that today? Why is medicine the only industry that I know of where computers, data analytics, robotics, artificial intelligence have raised costs, not lowered it, and failed to increase quality to any significant degree. It's just almost called a low-hanging fruit. It's just hard to do. And that's why I think that despite the fact that this idea can be traced back 100 years, and we're talking about a range of presidents who've pushed it. I mean, I defy you to give me another example where Nixon, Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump, and Biden all agree on anything. But they all have pushed in a direction of moving from fee-for-service to capitation. And as you know, CMS has been trying to do this now for over a decade. Right. And it continually fails. And why does it fail, in my view at least? Hmm. Because it continues to try to capitate at the insurance level. Hmm. And my belief is you need to capitate at the delivery system level. And when you capitate at the delivery system level, that's when you start to see the change in performance. You see systems created, collaboration and cooperation to increase prevention. It's not just the job of primary care. It's not just paid an extra dollar every time you get a hemoglobin A1C. No, it's everyone's job at every point of contact. You start to use a electronic health record in a way that increases quality and avoids gaps in preventive care. You take people with chronic disease and you better manage them in ways to avoid complications. You mm -hmm. focus on eliminating medical errors and other oversights. This is what happens when you move in that direction, but we have not to any large extent outside of a couple of organizations like Kaiser Permanente mm -hmm. figured out how to move from a fragmented FIFA service antiquated technological approach to one that is appropriate, in my opinion, for the 21st century. And so, Robbie, when you say uh, move capitation from the insurance level to the delivery level, so an example of that would be like a Kaiser Permanente, is that correct? That would be, or your last set of guests, the uh, Chen Med, and uh, Chris Chen was on your show, yeah. and that's another great example where they a focus on 
individuals mm -hmm. who are either in Medicare Advantage or dual eligibles, the very, very sick uh, patients, they don't see them every three months. They see them every month. They don't focus just when they have an acute problem. They look at opportunities to prevent problems and all the wonderful approaches they take. Mm -hmm. It's just that there's just not a lot of these groups mm -hmm. and there's a transition. You need to have enough size to be able to take risk, even with uh, additional insurance to protect you against outliers of a transplant or something else. It still takes a certain size. It takes a collaboration and a coordination, and that doesn't exist. It takes leadership, and that is missing, from my view, across nearly all of American healthcare today. Fee-for-service is just easier. It works mm -hmm. great for the providers of care. The problem is it doesn't work very well for patients, doesn't work actually very well for the clinicians mm -hmm. who find themselves in the system, and as a nation, we lag the rest of the world, the industrialized world, uh, on almost all measures of quality outcomes. Our longevity is five years less than other countries. Our maternal mortality is uh, two to three times higher, unless you're a black woman, in which case it's six to eight times higher. Our childhood mortality is the highest amongst the industrialized nations. We just continue to move forward in this way, believing it's the best way to provide care, not recognizing that the world has changed and that's what these retailers are seeing. They see the opportunity. And when large, successful companies see an opportunity, they move into it and they don't move small, they move big. They have the cash reserves to do so. Mm -hmm. And I worry mm -hmm. that what we're going to find is that the current clinicians, the current providers of care are going to become employees, not leading voices, not leaders in the healthcare industry, and that they and patients are gonna regret the fact that they waited too long to make the move. And by the time they made the move, it was simply too late. So this notion of capitation, I just wanna pick up on that a little bit, the capitation at the level of the care delivery system. So tell me if, if I'm aligning with your thinking here, if I understand this, my thought about it is that the so-called payviders, the, the groups like CVS, Aetna, like now Walmart with their 10-year partnership with United Health Group, like Amazon now with its acquisition of IR Health, but but also the the humanas of the world that are are essentially, yes, they're insurance companies, but they're also large provider groups, as we know, Humana and uh, Optum being sort of the poster child for that. To me, it seems like there is a a market advantage that both the retailers and the previous, what we used to call payers, they they have over healthcare systems in that they they have the insurance arm and at the same time they have the provider arm so this transition this painful transition from fee for service to value based payment that most healthcare systems and hospitals are very very cautious about moving into and have really really only dipped their tip of their toe in these other systems that have have the payer side much much more aligned to making that transition and actually to going full bore into it. And so it just seems like there's a business model advantage, alignment advantage that they have speaking to your point of, show me your incentives and I'll show you what you're gonna be doing. Speak to that, do you, do you disagree with that or how do you see that picture and, and that sort of disadvantage that healthcare systems are in not having that, that insurance side and not, not having the capitation at their level? Or is it something that they could actually jump on if they wanted to? 
Well, you're absolutely right that the delivery systems would have to either become insurers being able to take risk, whether they did it as a in a traditional insurance product or they did it, let's say, through a Medicare Advantage type approach, or they have to convince someone that they're going to be able to take this risk and provide the care as the ChenMed uh, organization and other organizations like it have been able to accomplish. So you're right that if an insurer is able to create by hiring physicians and creating a delivery system, and if they have the means of, uh, or the willingness, I would say, to have clinician leaders and the ability to move the capitation down to the delivery system, it's a significant advantage. If what they're doing is they're using their size to be able to take the capitation, and then at the delivery system level, they're still paying fee-for-service, but they're putting in place very rigid prior authorizations and other means of limiting care, I don't think that's a positive step forward. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying, I think we all use the same word capitation, and it means very different things. To me, capitation requires that you either have a large primary care organization that's capable of being able to provide all of the preventive care, chronic disease care, and find a way to be able to uh, have the specialty care provided, or more preferably, from my perspective, a multi-specialty medical group or a highly integrated uh, care delivery system that can then accomplish this and be able to find tremendous efficiencies in the providing of care. I'll give you another example. You know, when, when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we put in place using digital technology, the ability when a primary care physician is seeing a patient, needs some degree of specialty expertise to be able to connect the specialist into that exam room while the patient was still there. So that a diagnosis was made within a matter of minutes, a treatment plan created, and as much as 40 to 50% of the time, the problem could now be managed by the primary care physician. Now just think about how much better that is for patient care. There's no delay in diagnosis, it's immediate. There's an educational process where the specialist is able to educate primary care. The patient doesn't get bounced back and forth between two doctors, it's all resolved at the same time. And if something more needs to get done, that process can be started at that moment. Compare that to what happens again in a fee-for-service world. There's no way the specialist wants to provide that video expertise because then that individual won't see the person in the office. And the only way they get paid is to see the person in the office. The last thing they want to do is have the primary care physician solve and treat the problem because they want to solve and treat the problem. All of the incentives misalign versus aligning. Right. And that's what I mean at the delivery system level. Take another problem, total joint replacement. This Mm -hmm. is a very expensive part of the American healthcare system. It's a growing part of the system. Um, The typical patient having a total joint replacement ends up spending three days in the hospital. Sometimes they then go on to a nursing facility. We did 60 to 70% of the total joints on an outpatient basis with far better results for patient care. Now, how do you do this? You can't do this at the insurance level. It doesn't work. It has to start before the surgery 
with the clinicians and physical therapists training patients in crutch walking and various range of motion. It requires that you actually have in the recovery room, the physical therapist to start the knee or the hip exercises. It requires that you use a different, longer lasting forms of local anesthesia. It requires that you can follow over the patients at home, answer their questions, manage their medication. These are all steps that are needed, relatively inexpensive, by the way, mm -hmm. that now achieves better outcomes. You know, one of the things we'll probably talk a little bit about leadership later on mm -hmm. is I often tell individuals when I was first selected as the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, I was up at the Oregon Health Sciences area giving a talk. And I just remember vividly, this was 1998, and I finished my talk and I was wandering around looking at various uh, signs posted on the bulletin board. And there was this one sign. It said across the top in big letters, quality, access, cost. And below it said in small font, pick any two. You know, this was the mentality of the 20th century, 21st century. We can do all three. We can use technology to accomplish all three. We just don't. Mm -hmm. And I think it all goes back to the fundamental way that we pay for care. And I believe that a capitated system at the delivery system now starts to move physicians to higher collaboration coordination. And it creates the incentives and the financial return to invest in the technology that's gonna allow care to be done quicker, mm -hmm. right the first way, consistently achieving the best outcomes. But it also requires that there be a leadership structure that is capable mm -hmm. of understanding what's possible and then making that happen. And I don't see that today, really almost anywhere in American healthcare. Yeah, I wanna dive into that in a moment. And before we do, just a quick question. When we were emailing back and forth leading up to this interview, and I asked you about the challenges that hospital leaders face, and you made a point of saying, you know, there's a difference between healthcare systems, provider groups, and hospitals. Just wanted to explore that a little bit with you just to be clear we're talking about the same thing so wh why did you make that distinction in terms of hospitals and healthcare systems because i think of more i think of the large healthcare systems now hospitals are sort of the base of those systems what point were you making there so you're you're raising a important point that we in general use single words to mean multiple different things right and what do i mean by that i mean very specifically well let me back up right now Hospitals, I think, are in tremendous danger right now. What, what you're seeing is that the majority of hospitals are actually losing money on an operating basis. Yes, they make some money because they have you know, significant investments. And at least when the markets were going up, they could make uh, significant dollars in that particular way. But right now, hospitals are at tremendous risk, and it's going to get worse as what you see is that many of the procedures, total joint that we just discussed being a good example, moving out of the hospital into the outpatient arena, moving out of the hospital oversight into what will be a different financial model driven by private equity that we're seeing increasingly in healthcare. 
And so when I look at hospitals, I think they're going to be struggling. Why is that? Because they are stuck in the middle. You have the insurer who's going to want to ratchet down the expenses that are sitting there. And you have the hospitals that are watching less and less, fewer and fewer dollars flow in. Now, if you actually dive deeper on that same set of data, which you actually see is that there are the winners and the losers. And what the winners have is the ability to have monopolistic control. So if you are the only hospital in town, you can charge almost anything you want because insurers and the federal government won't pay unless you have a hospital into your network. Uh, if you have several hospitals spanning a local geography and no real competitors, once again, you can raise your prices. And so for the hospitals that are being successful, they're able to do it by more monopolistic control. The hospitals that find themselves in a competitive environment, single hospitals, uh, I think are facing uh, major financial challenges. And we've only started to see the process. As you know, contracts, particularly union contracts, are signed for a year or two into the future. And we haven't yet seen the massive increase in costs, labor costs. So we're just starting to see that it's about to happen, particularly around inpatient nursing. So I think hospitals are not going to be well positioned. On the other hand, as soon as you have real health systems, mm -hmm. by health system, we're talking about at least one hospital, often more. We're talking about a group of physicians who are part of that hospital system. Sometimes we're talking about an insurance opportunity. Now we're starting to look at what I see to be the future of healthcare, which is going to be this replacement for the fragmented parts that all exist right now. And the ability now to move from fee-for-service to capitation. If you look at what happened during COVID, hospitals got killed. Doctors didn't do particularly well. Mm -hmm. Insurers did extremely well. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as you're a hospital system, you can balance all those pieces. But no one could do that during the COVID period. I think we're going to enter another period that's going to be similar to that. It's going to be one driven by the increasing cost of care. And as you well know, early in the COVID era, hospitals particularly were given a lot of support, encouragement for the care that's provided. They are increasingly coming under a microscope. Not-for-profit status is being questioned. So I think that what you're seeing is that in individual and independent hospitals face tremendous risk, and they're going to do a lot better if they get into a system of care where they can, I'll say, not have just one trick, but have a variety of ways that they can do well, of which ultimately what I think is that the way you're going to do best mm -hmm. across time is to do the things that are going to increase quality in ways that are easy to access and they lower cost. Mm -hmm. That's the solution of the 21st century. It's the synergy amongst mm -hmm. the three. It's yeah. not the contradiction between each of them. This is fascinating. And I'm beginning to understand in speaking to a lot of the writings you've been putting together at the core of both this sort of the retail movement into healthcare and their ascendance. And at the core of this healthcare system of the future that you're talking about, at the core of both is this notion of moving to value-based care, moving to capitation at the level of the provider 
group at the level of delivery. And at least that's the way I'm, I'm hearing it. It, it. This is a critical key piece uh, for the success of any integrated delivery network, any healthcare system of the future. So before I move on and ask you the next question, am I correct in, in understanding what you're, you're saying? Absolutely. But I want to emphasize even more strongly. Okay. I'm not talking about NIPS and macro and 8% <laughs> and 10% and, right. you know, 95 different <laughs> metrics for which you each get another dollar and 25 yeah. cents. No, I'm talking about being able to take that full responsibility and be able to benefit not by checking a box, but actually keeping someone healthy, avoiding a heart attack, avoiding a stroke, mm -hmm. avoiding the problems that we know are avoidable. Mm -hmm. Not 100%. Colon mm -hmm. cancer, 20 to 30%, we should be able to lower it based upon the data in the literature. Heart attacks, strokes, 30, 40%. Mm -hmm. We have these opportunities and the systems that can capture that value I see being there, and that's different even than almost anyone is talking about today. Well, it, it is different. It's visionary. It's, I guess I'm really wondering, does it exist? Because what I see again is, I mean, when you look at the numbers and you ask the question, what percentage of the revenue are these large healthcare systems getting from value-based care, from capitated care? And the answer is well below 5% well below 5%, right? So it, it might be closer to 1% or 2% at most. And so we've got a long way to go. I mean, you're, you're painting a picture of, I think, an idyllic future. And and again, it, to me, it seems like the advantage here is the payviders and the retailers that don't have some of the legacy constructs and infrastructure and business models. They're starting from today, and it seems like they're, they, they have a better chance of advancing. And so you talk about this as, and, and I really appreciate your sort of hitting this issue of, and I wonder about this question myself, the issue of leadership. I mean, why is there such an incrementalist approach? And like you were just saying before, I mean, I've, I've done population health for a number of years, been involved with it for a number of years. It's just, it, it's sort of this never ending 10 year plan, right? Going from step one to step two to step three. It's like a purgatory to never leave. And not good for anyone and it's inefficient and and yet we continue to be in this and I, I i see healthcare systems across the country still hugging the fee for service and so is it a matter of leadership what what is this incrementalist mindset and i think you you actually talked a little bit about this in a piece around the the middleman mindset which i which i thought was really really interesting your take on that you're raising multiple issues the first one is it takes leadership to be able to make the kind of leap we're speaking about. And everyone wants incremental steps and incremental steps are never possible. As long as you can make money doing fee-for-service, you're going to move in that direction because it's so much easier. There's a medical group that I know that I won't tell you the particular name of it that actually has two entrances there's an entrance for the fee-for-service patients and a different entrance for the capitated ones. And guess who gets the premier service? Because fee-for-service is such a high dollar opportunity. It's why healthcare costs the United States is going up so rapidly, double almost any other nation in the world, five to 6% a year. You, know, you do the math, 
2019, the federal government said healthcare costs are going to go five to six percent a year. Over a decade, when you compound that number, that's $2.5 trillion for the same health care. How much longer are people going to be willing to tolerate it? And that's why I see these large retailers coming in there, because they can make the leap. You know, a hospital that could find ways to keep 30% of the patients out of the hospital would go bankrupt. And yes, over time, they'd have to grow their size and they could make up for that and do very well. But it's that transition because even a large hospital, unless it's the most massive systems, doesn't have the kind of ability to weather the storm for those few years. But these retailers will have the money, you know, they have mm-hmm. 60, $100 billion sitting in their balance sheet. They have the long-term view. They're willing to make the investments because they can see the magnitude of opportunity that comes along. So what do we do? You mentioned the, mid- the middleman mentality. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think about this as the driveway. You know, you wake up one morning, you go outside and you see a crack in your driveway. What are you going to do? You can pave it over, which is relatively inexpensive. Or you can dig up the whole asphalt driveway. You can dig out the roots that are probably causing the cracks, and then you can repave it. Most often, people tend to repave the driveway. That's what we've done. We found these point solutions. You know, you look at the companies in the venture world, and I follow them very closely. Almost all of them are a point solution. They find something we're doing really poorly today. You can't get a doctor's appointment. We got ZocDoc for you. You know, you can't get a drug delivered to you. We have good RX. You can't have a telemedicine visit scheduled. We have Teladoc. You go on and on with all the problems that we have, and you see these small solutions, but they don't address why can't you get a doctor's appointment? Why is it so hard to get a reasonably priced medication? that doesn't cost very much to produce, and yet pharmacies are selling them for such a high price. All the problems that exist, it's just easier to find that. You have a particular disease and a particular problem, and we have a solution for your disease, whether it's diabetes or whether it's uh, something else that is poorly taken care of in American medicine today. People have figured out The safe way to go is to create a service that gets around the inefficiencies in healthcare. And as a individual, you're pleased. You got your problem solved. But as soon as you step back and look at it from a systems perspective, it's crazy. Why would you have all these point solutions unconnected with each other when you actually could address the underlying problem? The answer is because the underlying problem is so difficult so expensive, so problematic to fix. And it's why I'll tell you, I'm mm-hmm. pessimistic that mm-hmm. the solution is going to come out of the clinicians from whom it should come from. You know, I'll give you another example that we talk about it all the time. You've talked a bit quite a, quite a lot on your show, which is primary care. You know, if we looked at the question, how should you pay doctors? Mm-hmm. One answer might be, why don't we pay physicians based upon the quality of life improvements that they achieve. And with a lot of data has said that adding 10 primary care physicians to a community increases 
longevity two and a half times, adding 10 specialists. And yet, as you know, as you've talked about in your show, we don't particularly value primary care. And why is that? This to me is that same mentality that if a interventional procedure is gonna generate huge revenue for both the individuals doing it and the hospitals in which it's done, that's gonna be valued, not the person who prevented the need for that happening. But as the patient, which one do you want? Yeah, of course. Right. And so we again, we talk about yeah. these things. How long do we talk about prevention? How oh long God. do we talk about management of chronic disease? What right. did we see during COVID? And yet the change doesn't happen. And I just think we need to look in the mirror to ask ourselves why. And what we're going to see is that we are in this system, right. whether you want to call it the middleman mentality, point solutions, FIFA service. It's just so much easier. Incrementalism. Yeah. Do that than to make the big change. Robbie, you know, as you're talking about this and painting the pictures that you paint, it sounds, I mean, it just, as I listen to you, I'm just thinking to myself, my God, this is absolute lunacy. Because you're right. I mean, we've been talking about these things, safety, quality, prevention. We have the ability to do it at a very reasonable cost. In fact, at a, a much better cost than the current model. And yet we we continue not to pursue it in a very, very incremental piecemeal uh, approach. It, it is absolute lunacy. I wonder if we're going to look back or, or, or the next generation or two going to look back and, and wonder what the hell we've been doing for the last 20 years in healthcare in, in this country. So here's here's my question. And you talk about leadership and I want to hear your take on leadership. And, and you, you said something before, a pretty strong statement about, you know, we don't have the kind of leaders or something along those lines. I guess what I'm wondering and struggling with is, is this an issue of, of leadership? Because again, I've been wondering about the same thing. I've seen so much incrementalism. I've seen so much short-term financial thinking. Yet, to be fair, to be fair, is it more about a legacy, antiquated, outmoded business model that we're stuck in? To what you said a few moments ago, I mean, is it going to be possible? That's really, for me, the big question. Is it going to be possible for hospitals or healthcare systems to weather that transition, whether it be a one year, more of a leap or, or more of a stepwise approach. I wonder whether it's the leadership or just the tough hand kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place that the leadership here find themselves in. What, what, what is your take on that? It's a combination. You know, what leaders do is they make things happen that otherwise would not. And what otherwise would not, at least coming intrinsically from inside the healthcare system, is going to be this evolution. So I think that the retail entree is what in the business world you'd call a strategic inflection point. Hmm. It's going to be a moment in time when there's a change called disruptive technology, if you like, Clay Christensen. It's all the same concept that it will change the direction. It will happen fast. You know, I don't, I'm a big lover of Clay Christensen's books. And when you read about each of these industries, what you see is that it takes a long time, 20 years, sometimes 30 years hmm. for a great idea, a great idea that ultimately is going to change the world to come into existence. But then what you see is it doesn't happen slowly. It comes in super fast. Hmm. 
And I think that that's why I keep pointing to these retailers that um, I think are coming into the marketplace. I be, you know, I thought maybe a decade ago that it would actually be the payers, the employers who are actually paying for all this care. But I think what they've realized is that a combination, they can simply accept the added cost and move it on because, as you know, there's tax advantages to them in doing that. And they can, in addition to that, they can pass some of that on to employees. And as you know, the out-of-pocket expenses is now tremendous. And the number of Americans who are uh, facing financial difficulties as a consequence of healthcare costs is now more than any other place of, in the economy. So I think that the, they've been able to weather the storm and they've decided that it's just not worth getting all the employees that unhappy. It's a lot easier to just make them pay an extra $100,000, whatever it's going to be each year. Uh, they're not going to leave over that, but they will leave if the total system starts to change. And that's why I also think the retail uh, players are coming in because they now see the opportunity that's there. I do believe that a skilled clinician leader Mm-hmm. with some training uh, at the business level, could figure out how to make the steps happen. Mm-hmm. Now, you look back at history, you know, people like the Mayo Brothers and uh, the Mayo Clinic, or you look at uh, Dr. Sidney Garfield and Kaiser Permanente. Almost all of those large integrated systems are ones that can be traced back to a small number of leaders who were able to right. accomplish that. That's what I see right now. Now, what are the steps that are going to be necessary? You got to be able to create a vision for people and it has to be exciting to them. You know, I'll let me give you a little thought experiment. See what you think about this. Hmm. Um, what would happen if, now, don't even think about time, money, or convenience. Do you think patient care would get better if, Every individual saw a physician every day. Now, time doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter. Convenience doesn't matter. We're going to put that to the side. We're just going to ask the question, would care improve? And this assumes the doctor would have plenty of time to provide the yeah, care. I think so. I'm going to yes. say absolutely yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because yeah. all the pieces of that are missing, whether it's the prevention, whether it's the gaps in chronic mm-hmm. disease, whether sure. it's wellness and lifestyle and diet, exercise. I can give a list of things why it doesn't happen because we skip over it. Right. So now in this thought experiment, let's shift it a little bit and say, how can technology accomplish Hmm. almost all of that? So what would happen if Alexa became the doctor's Mm -hmm. agent Mm -hmm. in the patient's home? Mm -hmm. What would happen if every time you take a medication, Alexa would remind you Alexa would ask, did you take the medication? What would happen if, uh, I'll say on a periodic basis, well, we could say every day, it could be every week, you asked Alexa, how is my health care coming along? And Alexa would remind you the preventive tests you hadn't had. Alexa would update you if you have diabetes on your blood glucose, your hemoglobin A1C, would be able to explain all the things that were there. Alexa could link in with your uh, Fitbit or your uh, Apple Watch and make sure you got the exercise you were supposed to have. Alexa could help you if you're having isolation and other mental health problems. I mean, these are not easy thoughts. Don't get me wrong. Right. But you start to say, well, yeah, you know, that really could work. 
what would we need? We need to have all the information available. We need to have doctors who'd be able to work together. We need to have some systems to support clinicians. Is it imaginable? And I believe, yes, I think it's all very doable in the 21st century. So now you're really talking about how do you bring together a group of clinicians, get them to function as a high performing team, get them to be able to use this technology and a lot of other technologies, whether it's video data analytics, artificial intelligence, you start to see avenues opening up that today don't exist. And that to me is how I think about leadership. If the leader is going to say, we're going to do the quality, the access and the cost, all three simultaneously, you start to see these pieces as saying, yeah, you know, if we can avoid the heart attacks, the strokes, the cancers, the infections that we know we could, we know how to do this. Wow, we could really lower cost, not by doing things, not by doing less, but by doing better. And in doing that, you create a virtuous cycle where you're able now to have the resources to continue to invest, to continue to support, to address some of the burnout issues. I just think that opportunity exists right now and a leader is gonna have to be able to step in there, bring people together and make that negotiation happen. It's gonna require someone who's skilled on both sides because you're gonna have to start with either um, Medicare Advantage or some type of arrangement with uh, self-funded businesses. But do I think it's possible? Absolutely. And I think that leaders could do it. Not everyone can do it, but there are enough examples where people have done it in the past. And right now, no one seems to be stepping forward, trying to create that system. We talk a lot about it. There's a lot of people writing about it. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not that these ideas are unique or new to me. As I say, they've been around for almost 100 years. Mm. But what I'm not seeing is are people being able to accomplish that and achieve that outside of small groups of primary care, outside of a couple of organizations that have been at it for decades, um, like a Kaiser Permanente. But for the most part, I think that it hasn't yet happened. But that to me is just a question of leadership. I think we have not been able to, and I often talk about three anatomic structures, use our brains in a different kind of way, helping people to imagine what's possible, to understand the opportunities, and the potentiality, to touch the heart in a way through stories and patient um, experiences that make us feel compelled to move forward despite the risks that are there. And then maybe most importantly, the spine, because doing so requires that people be willing to do the hard things, even when right. they're really hard. And um, maybe that level of leadership just has gotten displaced by people attracted to the alternative, the middle uh, man mindset, the uh, opportunities in various startup venture arenas to make a lot of money coming up with point solutions. Well, Robbie, I, th I think on that energizing note, we'll wrap this dialogue up, but I, I just want to say that three-piece anatomic description of leadership, the head, the heart, and, and the spine, sort of courage and gut, the backbone. Uh, first of all, I just want to say, I, I, I think you actually exemplify that as a leader. I've 
seen that in you for for years, uh, years and years. And I agree. I share so many of the same thoughts and perspectives and and opinions you do. And I, I will say, I just find it so fascinating that the the next phase, if you will, of healthcare, the next generation, uh, the next iteration, may be coming from outside of the traditional system, at least being catalyzed in that way. And it's interesting, but it, it could be one of the reasons why both you and I have spent so much time looking outside of the system, right? Looking to see where there are solutions, where there are new orientations, where there are ways, new ways of doing things, and then bringing them inside. I'd love to just give you the last word and, and then I'll, I'll wrap up. I would ask the listeners, whether they're the providers of care or the receivers of care or both, to ask yourself, how satisfied are you with the current system of medical care? How easy is it to get excellent quality, convenient access to do so in a way that is affordable? And then if the answer, which I suspect it is for many people, this is not the way no. they would get their retail, book their travel, do their financial negotiations, the financial banking. Ask yourself, is there a better way that is out there? And if the answer is yes, and again, I believe that it is, I think it's hard to deny that it's not then ask just simply what's standing in the way. Hmm. And if anyone is waiting for someone else to do it for them, history has taught us in every industry, you will get left behind. Mm -hmm. And I encourage the clinicians, so many of whom listen to your great shows, to step forward. Because the one thing I will guarantee is that if you don't, a decade from now, you will get left behind and you will regret your slowness to intervene, your reticence to take the risk. Thank you, Robbie. As always, Robbie, just uh, such a, a pleasure, a privilege, just so energizing to hear you speak. Uh, I'd like to thank you for being with us today and for sharing your, your really profound thoughts. I, I hope folks are listening. And as I do, Robbie, as you know, every episode, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and those who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. Uh, can't tell you how much we appreciate you for what you do, recognize how critically important the work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends, this is Zeb Worth on creating a new health care. Until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>